Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from Clean Cuts Aretha Franklin Studio at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. The unlikely hero, the come-from-behind victory, the scrawny dude who's not supposed to stand up to the bully, but who does and who wins. Underdogs, we love them. But do we really understand them? That's the intriguing question at the heart of a great new book by one of North America's, indeed the world's, most popular nonfiction writers, Malcolm Gladwell. You know him from The New Yorker, and you know him as the author of four genre-straddling, culture-shaping books, including The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. Now he's out with his latest. It's called David and Goliath. Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. It's a fascinating book that, like all of Malcolm's work, very astutely challenges the conventional wisdom. It makes you rethink power and powerlessness, strengths and weaknesses, and advantage and disadvantage. It's also, I have to say, just a really enjoyable read and quite wide-ranging. In the course of its 275 pages, you'll learn about everything from the full-court press in basketball, to the troubles in Northern Ireland, from impressionists in Paris, France, to civil rights leaders in Birmingham, Alabama. You'll learn why you're often better off being disagreeable than agreeable, why the three-strikes law in California might have increased crime, and why you might want to send your kid to Hartwick rather than Harvard. All this with cameo appearances from Brian Grazer, Breer Rabbit, and Rick Pitino. But... We get to talk to the man himself. With us on the line is Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, Daniel. Um, Let me explain to you and our audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open things up so that listeners around the world can ask our guests questions they've submitted about work, business, life, careers, education, politics, and anything else. If you've got questions, we have answers. And when we don't, we always make something up. As we like to say, this program is Car Talk for the human engine. But as always, I get to go first. So let me begin. So Malcolm, threaded through this book, and again, the book is David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Threaded through this book is a story and a chart. I want to talk about each in sequence. So let's start with the story. It's one that everybody, certainly in the the Judeo-Christian tradition, remembers from Sunday school. Um, It's called David and Goliath. Here's how it goes. David is a boy. Goliath is a giant. They fight, and to the amazement of all, David wins. But you say the story isn't that simple. Tell us what really happened in the story of David and Goliath and how that got you into this book. Yeah, it's one of those, um, it's one of those stories that's come to stand for something. Um, but over the course of time, it, we've sort of lost, I think, its true meaning. Um, so if you look very close, it turns out there's a huge amount of literature on uh, the story of David and Goliath. People have gone back over it again and again to try and understand it. And the first thing that's interesting, important to realize, is that David's choice of weapon is a uh, superior technology. He's, you know, very often when we tell a story, sometimes we make the mistake of calling David's weapon a slingshot. It is not. It is a sling, which is one of the most potent weapons of the ancient world. Um, a slinger could, a, a stone thrown from a slinger had the stopping power of maybe, uh, probably a 45 uh, millimeter pistol. So if you were hit in the head by one of those, you were dead. There's just no doubt about that. Um, slingers were widely used against infantry in the ancient world with devastating results. Battles were won by slingers who just pitched these stones at 150 miles an hour. With devastating accuracy, if you were experienced with a sling, you had extraordinary um, slingers could hit birds in flight. That's how good they were. So what we have is David, is this young man who's been experienced with a sling because he's a shepherd and he uses it to protect his crops. He's up against Goliath, who's uh, essentially an infantryman, and is expecting another infantryman to have a duel, face-to-face combat. And David says, no, I, why would I do that? I'm going to use a sling. And the minute he uses the sling, everyone who's watching that battle realizes that David is the favorite. He's not, he's got, you know, in any combat in the ancient world between an infantryman and a slinger, the slinger had the upper hand. 
Right? So the, the first myth, there's a series of myths we've told ourselves about that story, and the first is that David is hopelessly overmatched. He's not. He has wisely, wisely opted out of the kind of ritual of, of this duel and said, you know what, I'm going to use... I'm going to use a better technology. I'm going to hit you from afar with something that you have no defense against. You're this big lumbering guy with 100 pounds worth of armor. You can't get out of the way uh, in time of the sling. And there's a wonderful paper written by a guy, a ballistics expert with the uh, Israeli Defense Force, in which he points out that the total time that elapses from David winding up and Goliath getting hit is just over a second. Goliath doesn't have a chance. Right? I mean, he's, he's like, he doesn't even know what's going on. Um, so that's the point number one about that, about that story. The second thing is there's all this really fascinating speculation about what's wrong with Goliath. There's all these clues in the text that he's not what, we, what he seems to be. He moves very slowly. He's escorted down onto the valley floor by an attendant, which is weird. Why would he have someone bring him? He doesn't respond to David until the very last moment, as if he doesn't see him. Those kinds of, and what many people have come to argue is that um, uh, that Goliath has acromegaly, which is uh, the same. One of, he's a giant because he has a hyperactive. He's got a tumor uh, on his pituitary, and so he's overproducing human growth hormone. The same condition that many many giants have had over history. And one of the side effects of this condition is uh, that you have compression of your optic nerve, and you have you are you either have uh, double vision, or you are severely nearsighted, and that's what we think is wrong with Goliath. He can't see, but that's why David takes him by surprise. He doesn't actually come into uh, into um, uh, Goliath doesn't see him until it's too late, right? So this is led isn't onto a... the battlefield by an attendant because he can't make his way on his own. This is wonderful. So you realize that the real lesson of that story is that is that um, the very thing that makes people so intimidating can be the source of their greatest weakness that's, and that this this battle is not an upset victory is what you're is no, what you're what you're saying here you're saying that that an astute odds maker would have made David the favorite here absolutely the minute we realize the minute David turns to King Saul remember King Saul tries to give him uh, a sword and a shield and armor and because Saul is thinking that David's going to fight Goliath one-on-one. And David turns to Saul, remember, and he says, um, I, I won't take these, for I have not proved them. Meaning, that's not the way I want to fight. The minute you see that and realize that, the odds are in David's favor. He's changed strategies. So David um, uses a David uses a superior technology. He doesn't fight on Goliath's term, and Goliath's, Goliath's power is actually masking some weakness. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so, so this fat, so this very different take on the story is sort of very different from this from the conventional view, as I said, that we learn in Sunday school. Yield some lessons that you begin to explore in the rest of the book. So, what's give, give us a sense of what a couple of those lessons are that this David and Goliath story yields? Yeah. Well, the first one. So, a good chunk of the book is spent talking about um, this idea that in power lies weakness. So the things that the very things that make the powerful seem so intimidating can very often mask profound weaknesses. That there are dangers inherent in um, in things like having excess resources, being prestigious, um, having the authority to kind of order people around. All those kinds of things are perilous in a way that we don't always understand. Um, and then, so that's sort of. One strand of the book is making that argument, and the second strand of the argument book is making the argument that um, that in when you have nothing to lose, the person at the bottom who has nothing to lose, who isn't bound by the conventions of the battle, um, who doesn't feel they have to follow the rituals of of um, conventional society, has has unexpected amounts of power. That there is. Um, that being in, being in a desperate position can give you all kinds of freedom that you uh, would, uh, wouldn't, otherwise, wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've, I'm 
really interested in. So I have a chapter, for example, on on the IRA in Northern Ireland, really about the, what happened in the very earliest stages of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it's about that. You know, it's about how the British had every advantage of the world and didn't realize that with those advantages came um, a whole series of costs. And the IRA had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. And with that, gave, that gave them all kinds of, oddly enough, all kinds of freedom. So when you have that kind of balance between seeming power and seeming powerlessness, the actual the 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 odds are actually different are, are different from them that they seem on the on the surface. Yeah. So yeah. let's go let's go to this it. let's go to this so, notion of power here for a moment here because I think it's yeah. it, I mean this book is very much a book about power and about how we often don't think about power in the right way. And um one of the very interesting elements of the book that ends up being threaded throughout yeah. I think is a chart. And it's the inverted U-chart. And I think this begins yeah. to help listeners understand what you're talking about and some of the downsides of, of, of power. Tell yeah. us what that inverted U-chart is and why it matters. Yeah, the inverted U is a, a way of understanding the relationship between resources and outcomes. And it says something very simple. It says that um, in the beginning, when we add more resources to a problem, things get better. So you have no money, and I give you some money, your life improves. Right? And then that, that, that trend continues up to a point when the curve starts to flatten out. I give you more money, and past a certain point, it doesn't make your life better. Right? There's, and then the third stage of the inverted view is I give you more resources, and things start to get worse. And so the inverted view describes situations where the very same strategies that work at the beginning to make things better, if they are continued indefinitely, start to make things worse in the end. So I, I, the simplest example of it, I give a number of examples of this, but yeah. one is I give a, uh, have a big uh, chapter on class size. When classes are very large, we make, thing, we make life for the student better if we make them smaller. Right? If you go from a class of 40 kids to a class of 30 kids, your kid will do better. Then there's a point where all the evidence says it doesn't make any difference. There's no difference between a class of 27 kids and a class of 23 kids. No matter how much people will tell you that's a big difference, it's not. There's just no evidence to suggest any difference in educational outcome in the 20s. But the most interesting thing is if you start to take classes below 20 kids, things start to get worse. And that's the part we never talk about. We assume the same strategy of spending more money on education, which works so well at the very beginning, will keep working. And it doesn't. It starts to backfire. That idea is so crucial to understanding why, why it is that Goliaths screw up, because Goliaths very often are occupying that far end of the curve, when unexpectedly the same strategies that used to work start to go south. Yeah, in economic terms, for all the economists listening, you're basically charting something. You're you're basically charting um, uh, diminishing marginal returns to crossing the line to actually negative marginal returns. So let's go. Let's go to let's go to class size for a moment here, because I think it's very intriguing. Because there is a view among parents, among educators, that hey, you know, I want if I have a choice between putting my kid in a class of 25 kids and putting my class in a kid in a class of 18 kids. Of course I pick 18 kids. And what you're yeah. saying is that, you know what, the research shows that it doesn't matter. There's not much correlation. But I think the really intriguing thing and the thing that we don't talk about, as you just mentioned, is what happens when class size gets really small? You're saying that it leads to make it could make it, things worse. Tell us, tell us why that is. Unpack that for us. Yeah. I spent, I was so fascinated by this. So I started by going through the literature on this. And there's very, very little scientific literature uh, in or uh, literature in the educational world that um, looks at the at, at really 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 small classes. So whenever you hear about the benefits of smaller classes, they're talking about going from thirty five to twenty five. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I, I I I got in contact with I sent an email I sent an email out to hundreds of teachers asking them a very simple question, which is <laughs> what's your perfect class size? Okay? Is get a class be too small? And so I get back hundreds of responses, mm-hmm. and overwhelmingly the teachers all say, oh, totally a class can get too small. And they all peg their perfect class size. Now, there's a great deal of variability, but uh, most teachers said the perfect class size was in the low 20s. Hmm. 
and they really got uncomfortable when it got down into the teens. Mm-hmm, and they gave mm-hmm. the following reasons, which are really interesting. Mm-hmm. One is, you can't get discussion going when the class gets too small. The kids, particularly adolescents, start to get really, really self-conscious in a small room. And secondly, there's just not enough difference, diversity in the room. You want to have kids who've had different experiences, kids with different perspectives. You know, in a really, really successful class is where you have a real interaction between the students and the teacher, right? And they just said, you can't, you have no idea how hard it is to get a group of 14-year-olds to have a real discussion when there's only 12 of them. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. And then they said, more than that, in a small class, small classes are paradoxically can be really difficult to, um, to keep. You think they're really easy to keep discipline in, but it's not true. Because if there's a dispute between two kids in a class of 12 or 14, that dispute dominates the class. There's no there's one beautiful phrase a teacher said. It's like having two kids quarreling in the back seat of a station wagon. They can't get away from each other. Right? There's nowhere to hide. Um, but the most important reason why a small class is problematic is that it's problematic for the kid who's not doing well. So the good student doesn't matter. They can, they'll thrive in 30, they'll thrive in 10. They'll thrive in a closet, right? They're fine. But the poor student, one of the things we've come to realize is that the thing that is most important for kids who are in the bottom third of their class is having a peer who's learning at the same pace as they are. So they don't feel like they're the only one who's not getting it, right? What they need is to be surrounded by people learning at the same pace as them, asking the same questions, struggling with the same problems. And when the class gets too small and you're a poor student, you can't find a peer anymore, Mm -hmm. right? So you get singled out. You're the dumb one. And that is devastating for that child. So what what they want is there's safety in numbers for kids who are struggling. They can look around the room and see four other kids who also had the same problem with that particular equation on the board. Then they don't feel like they're a loser, right? Then they feel like, oh, this is normal. You know, there are people like me who have the same kind of problems. So time and time again, teacher would say that they really feared for struggling kids in small classes, Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, which is so completely counter to the way we think about it, right? We think, oh, you want to maximize uh, teacher attention for a kid who's struggling, but actually, no, they don't want to be the the message you're sending when one kid's dominating the teacher is that that kid can't do it. Right? That's really hard for that kid uh, to to take. Well, the other thing uh, that you the other thing that you write about, I I, I think you quote a, a teacher or um, a researcher on this, is that uh, teachers tend to deploy the same strategy in a small class as they do in a larger class. And it might call for a fundamentally different approach to teaching. And that's one of the missing pieces here. Yeah. Yeah, so if you want... So there is a scenario where we would say maybe smaller classes could work. But what you have to do in that scenario is you've got to get the teacher to completely readjust the way they mm-hmm. teach in that context. And that's what's not happening. But, you know, if you... In most of the cases, you take a class down from 30 to... 22, and what's happening is the teacher's just working less. Mm. Right? They're not changing the way they teach. They just have less homework mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. grade at the end of the day. And that doesn't... That, no, it's, sometimes it's important to make the teacher's life easier. In fact, I'm all for that, particularly if teachers are really good. I don't want them burning out. I want them paying attention. But that's a very different argument, you know, and there's other things we can do to make teachers' life easier. But if we're talking about the actual evidence that... Um, uh, that kids are doing better, it's just not there. Uh, it's really interesting. You're talking to, we're talking with Malcolm Gladwell. He's the author of David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Uh, we're talking about why power isn't what it seems to be, why underdogs might not be as, under, uh, as much underdogs as we think. Um, as always, Office Hours uh, is really about opening up the lines to have questions from people around the world and around the country. So let's go to a let's go to a uh, a question from a listener here, uh, for Malcolm. Hi, Malcolm. This is Michael Klein from Northampton, Massachusetts. My question is: Have you considered writing anything about parenting? And if so, or if not, could you share some general thoughts you have on it from all the research you've done? Thanks. 
Yeah, um, I actually have a part of a whole chapter on on the same theme of the U-shaped curve, talking about it with respect to parenting. And the same argument applies, and that is that I was looking at the, the question of does it become easier or harder to be a good parent to a child um, as we give the as the family has more resources, as we give the parents more money? And the answer is, in the beginning, absolutely. If you take a family from $20,000 a year to $40,000 a year, it makes the life of the parent a lot easier, right? They have time and resources and all kinds of things that are not available when they're struggling to get by. And that things start continue to get better as you raise the household income of the family. But there's a point where it starts to plateau. There's We think that many people who've studied things like happiness and and um, suggest the plateau might be somewhere around $75,000 a year in, in the United States. But I was interested in the third question, which the third stage of the curve, which is, is it harder to be an effective parent if you have many, many millions of dollars? And so I started interviewing all of these very wealthy people about, was it, did they find, as, you know, as the course of, over the course of their lives, as they accumulated all this money, how does it change the way they parent? And their answer was, it was very sobering. Time and time again, I had these heartbreaking interviews with these people who had achieved extraordinary career success, and they talked about how it had made their job as a parent incredibly difficult. So to give one really simple example, um, saying no to a child, which is crucial as a parent, right, is really hard when you have $100 million, right? When you, because you can no longer say we can't mm-hmm. or I can't. You have to say I won't, right? And I won't, I can't is easy. The kid asks for a pony, you say, you can't have a pony. I mean, it's ridiculous. We don't have the money. End of story. And the kid gets that really quickly. They understand that there are limits. Um, if you have $100 million, the kid says, can I have a pony? You can't plausibly say, oh, we can't. You can't. You have to say, I won't get you a pony for the following reasons. And it becomes very difficult. That's a very challenging thing to say, right? To get to establish, talk about your values as a family, give good reasons, explain to your child why there have to be limits, even when it's not necessary to have limits, even when limits don't obviously exist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, I had this, this, this interview I did with a very wealthy guy in Hollywood who had grown up in a in a lower-middle-class family. And he talked about how the reason he became successful was because of the lessons he learned growing up in a family with not enough resources. He learned independence, self-reliance, initiative. He learned how incredibly meaningful it can be to make your own way in the world. And then he was looking at his own kids, and he was saying, I have denied them every one of those lessons. Living in a fancy house in Bel Air, private jet. They'll never learn any of the things that made me who I am, that allowed me to have such a fulfilling career, and it broke his heart. And I think that's... It's an an interesting point. It's hard to shed too many tears for a guy with $100 million, but I think it raises a a really interesting point about... uh, about this inverted, about this inverted you yeah. that 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 past a certain point, some of these resources that we all think are the answer to everything can actually have a deleterious effect. And what's interesting to me, and you mentioned this in the book, is that this uh, gives some um, kind of statistical ev- statistical uh, basis for the the concept of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and multiple generations and. Yeah. And um, or there's one of the one language has this lovely way of putting it. I think it's from stars to stables in a couple of generations. Um, yeah. And one of the things that's interesting here, and let's 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 stick with this question about about parenting. I think that that to my mind, one of the most interesting sections of this book. I think the section that's going to get an enormous amount of attention deals with those sorts of deals with those sorts of things and deals with some amount of. Of, um, of of parenting issues. So let's go to the heart of an obsession among upper middle class parents, especially here in our nation's capital. And that has to do with college admissions. You tell the story of a young woman from the Washington, D.C. area, and she makes a tragic blunder in her Mm -hmm. career. She does something that ends up being a colossal mistake. You know what she decides to do, listeners? This young woman decides to go to an Ivy League school. 
And that proves to be her undoing. Tell us about that, because I think that's a and, and yeah. tell us a little bit about the numbers there, too, because they're quite fascinating. Yeah, I got really interested in uh, the notion of what's called a relative deprivation. Mm-hmm. And that relative deprivation is an idea that says that when we make judgments about ourselves, we judge uh, ourselves uh, next to our immediate peers, people like us in the same room as us, not to the world at large. So when a student makes a judgment about how good a student they are, whether they're understanding what's going on, they make that judgment based on the other students in the classroom, right? That's really an obvious, sort of an obvious sure. point. Right. So what that says is that as you go to a more and more elite school, you're going to feel worse and worse about your own abilities. In other words, the kid in the bottom half of his class at Harvard uh, thinks he's an idiot, even though he's probably in the 99, I, that's too strong a word, thinks he's an idiot, but <laughs> thinks he's struggling. Right. And because he is struggling in his own mind. He's Relatively not he's struggling. Everyone else is getting in a, in a nanosecond. But he's lost the big picture. He's probably in the 99.99th percentile of kids nationally. So you, it's a, so the going to elite schools, in other words, has a cost. If you're not going to be in the top half of the class, you're going to run the risk of mistakenly thinking that you are not a good student, of, of coming to a conclusion uh, about your own abilities that's at odds with reality. And this is a huge issue with science and math uh, education, um, that what you find, you know, we're, we have a, an acute shortage of graduates in science and math in this country. And what you find, and the reason for that is that kids drop out of those programs probably like roughly half of kids who start in science and math in college never finish in science and math. And if you look at those dropout rates, what you find is that at every school, regardless of how good the school is, the kids dropping out of science and math are the kids in the bottom half of their class. In other words, at Harvard, the bottom half of the class drops out of science and math. Mm -hmm. And at East Tennessee State, the bottom half drops out of science and math. It's not to do with how smart you are. It's how smart you feel relative to your peers. So I tell a story of a girl who was a brilliant science student. She gets into Brown, goes to Brown, and she's not in the top half of the class. And she comes to believe completely falsely that she can't do science, right? Because everyone else in her class is way better. Everyone else is getting, you know, uh, calculus and organic chemistry faster than she is. Um, what she what she can't see in the moment is that she's a brown, and the kids who are making her feel dumb are geniuses or near geniuses. They have IQs of 160, you know. Uh, and I sort of make I you know she at one point admits she realizes after it's all over that she also got into the University of Maryland. If she'd gone to Maryland instead of Brown, I should still be in science, right? And it was her goal to be in science. So, like, Brown, this is a weird fact, that going to the most prestigious school ended up thwarting her um, ambition. It, it limited her options. It forced her out of the thing that she loved. And I don't know how, I don't know why this isn't a bigger issue yeah, it's, uh, it, with people choosing schools. It's interesting, and you have a very crisp comparison between Harvard and Hartwick. And what you show here with some numbers is that the, uh, the bottom third of the class at at I'm sorry the bottom third of the class at at Harvard has roughly the same SAT scores let's use that as a proxy for ability has roughly the same SAT scores as the top third at Hartwick and yet the bottom third at Harvard aren't going to go into science careers and the top third at Hartwick are even though in an absolute way they're as capable students but relatively the Harvard students feel um, worse off and so they go and become lawyers yeah, they, you have this weird thing. So, yeah, you, I, I compared two schools that are quite different in terms of their um, reputation and prestige. Harvard and Harvard is like a good, small, sure, sure. Uh, I don't want to get hate mail from Hartwick alumni. No, no, it's a good, yeah. it's a good liberal arts school. It's not. They will be the first to tell you they're not at Ivy League caliber. So I compared the bottom third at Harvard with the top third at Hartwick. They're roughly equal, mm-hmm. and the the Harvard all the the Hartwick all stars who were started out in science, finished in science. They, all, they were at the top of their class. They sailed through. They got science degrees. They went and hit the job market fully equipped. Kids with exactly the same test scores at Harvard, but who happened to be uh, at a school where they were at the bottom of their class, 
they dropped out of science and math and drove. And that's sobering, right? Because every kid who went to Harvard went there because they were told this was the way to fulfill their dream. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, see, you, you do a lot of challenging of, of, uh, of elite institutions as, as well, um, more yeah. broadly. And one of the things that you say is that uh, the, the, the prestige and, and resources and, I guess, to some extent, the belongingness of attaching oneself to an elite institution absolutely can make you better off. But... It comes with uh, penalties, it comes with costs, it comes with disadvantages that aren't always um, obvious to us. So, yeah. so let's, say you're, you know, let's say you're talking to a young woman interested in science. Let's say that she's my daughter, who's 17 mm-hmm. years old. Yes. And let's say she says, I, of course, don't listen to my father, but let me listen to the eminent Mr. Gladwell. Should I go to Harvard or should I go to Harwick? Well, it... It depends. I don't know your daughter. I'm going to guess that she's super brilliant. Um, does she think she has a reasonable chance of finishing in the top third of her class at Harvard? If the answer is yes, she should go there. Mm-hmm. If she thinks that she's going to be in the bottom third of her class, she has to understand that being at the yeah. bottom of a class at any level, but particularly at an elite level, is a deeply difficult place to be. It is a really, really hard it's really, really hard to feel like you're the dumbest person in the room. Yeah, yeah. And particularly if, I'm guessing, until now, she's never, ever felt that, right? I'm going to guess that she was near the top of her class all the way through high school and before that in middle school and elementary school. She's, has she ever had a C? You know, if you're, if you're going to... What's going on with the story I tell of this girl? Yeah. You know, she'd never had anything less than an A in her life. Yeah. She gets to Brown, and suddenly she's getting C's. It's psychologically devastating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's a really great. It's a really great point, and I, and and I, and I love that question from the from from the caller because I do think again, maybe again, we all read books and we all reflect on things based on our own experience. As the father of three, I can't help but read a book like this through the eyes of a of of, of a father. So let's let me just pursue that a little bit more. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to Malcolm Gladwell. He's the author of the great new book. David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, uh, along with the notion of relative disadvantage that you write in the book, which is the idea that if you go to an elite institution, you're going to be at a relatively lower spot on the totem pole generally than you would if you were at a more mass institution. You also have what I think you also have an entire section of the book devoted to what I think is a really powerful idea, which is the the idea of desirable difficulty. And yeah. you tell this story, you, 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 just, you elucidate this idea through several stories, um, including the story of David Boies, uh, the well-known, uh, eminent uh, litigator. Um, tell us about why certain kinds of difficulty actually is desirable, that as parents, yeah. we don't actually want to shield our kids from all that difficulty, that in some cases we might want to introduce it into their lives. Yeah, so this is, I, this is a chapter that's devoted to uh, people suffering from dyslexia. And it's based on this observation um, that has been made repeatedly now that dyslexia has, uh, uh, there is a bimodal distribution. Large numbers of people with dyslexia um, uh, are worse off for, for being dyslexic because it's a really serious uh, neurological disability. But there is a group of people who appear to have succeeded not in spite of their dyslexia, but because of it. That is to say, there is a group of people for whom that particular difficulty ended up making them better off. The strategies that they were forced to develop to kind of work around and compensate for not being able to read ended up being way more useful to them than the ability to read ever would be. Um, so Boys is this classic example. Talk to David Boys, one of the greatest trial lawyers in the world. He's uh, been profoundly dyslexic his whole life. He reads one book a year, he told me. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he will tell you that, you know, first of all, you deal with this incredible, bizarre paradox that someone would be an effective lawyer when they barely read. You know, that's sort of weird. But when he describes it, he says, look, first of all, uh, I learned from a very early age, because I was such a poor reader, I learned how to listen. Um, and I also learned developed an extraordinary memory. 
I had to memorize things, and I had to hear what people were saying, listen very closely to what they were saying, because I didn't have any other recourse. It's not like I could, in school, go and read the textbook. So he would sit in college, for example, or in law school. Everyone else is like doodling or daydreaming <laughs> or scribbling notes furiously. He's sitting there with nothing in front of him, focusing on the professor and committing everything that's being said to memory. Yeah, it's a very arresting. There's a moment in the book that I find very, as a former law student, it's very arresting that, that he would be fixed in his attention in that way. Yeah, that he would. and he, And then he goes out into the world, the legal world, and what he discovers is that those two skills, which he's been working on his whole life, as a trial lawyer, are unbelievably important. They are more than that. They set him head and shoulders above everybody else. Because what is a trial lawyer? Someone who, you know, can succeed by listening incredibly closely to what the witness is saying, the person he's cross-examining is saying. And then if he can commit all that to memory, it gives him this extraordinary power in the moment, right? He said that he does this in these cross epic cross-examinations and some of the most biggest-named cases of the day where he will say to the guy, but three days ago, in my, you know, in response to that one statement, you said, dun, 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 dun. He's got it in his head. Right? And he heard it, right? It's, it's fascinating to see how we have this notion in our head of what a lawyer is. A lawyer is someone who reads lots of things. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. But what Boyd says is, no, there's more than one effective strategy to success in many fields. And he was, essentially by his disability, forced to take... Exactly a non-obvious route, which turns out to be an incredible differentiator between him and the rest of the pack. Now, are there ways that, that we can um, uh, enlist some of those strategies and force ourselves to take that non-obvious route? Yeah, well, I was going to say, it, this links back to the, to the discussion we were having about class size. The final argument against two small classes is you don't want your kid to have immediate, constant access to the teacher. Mm. If the teacher is running around in a class of 25, attending to everybody, and can only get to your kid, you know, for a limited period, that may not be a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be sitting there looking at the calculus problem and being forced to figure it out on your own. Because in the real world, you know... Absolutely. There's not someone hovering over your shoulder. So that's one... One, no, that's another argument for mm-hmm. you don't want your kid in a class of 10. Mm-hmm. You, you, you want your kid to sit there and have to sweat it out from time to time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but to more generally to your point, that's a, a really interesting, um, and I think it, it bears very directly, for example, on the relationship that managers ought to have to the people that are managing, that um, the, the manager is not someone that to... To be the perfect manager, that is to attend to every detail and problem, is to disable the people you're trying to lead. Hmm. Right? I mean, it's all sure. about that, 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 and that's, a, that's been a kind of tenant of effective management for quite some time. You mm-hmm. have to take a step back, and it's not a bad thing for your subordinates to encounter difficulty and to be forced to develop strategies to, to deal with it. Yeah, and this is, I mean, again, going back, we're going to open this up to some more listener questions here in a moment, but let me just obsess on parenting here for, for, for a moment. There is, there's an interesting line of thinking uh, in parenting and education policy that's embodied in a, in a wonderful book called uh, The Blessings of a Skin Knee, the idea that you want to let your kids out doing all kinds of things, getting injured be, um, in some level within certain boundaries, because that's the only way they basically build the antibodies to, to, to learn um, to learn on their own in the world. Um, you also have, and I think this raises an interesting question, you say that, 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 I find this quite interesting, that some gifted children fail to live up to their promise because they have inherited an excessive amount of psychological health. Yes. <laughs> well, this is part of the book where I was, yeah. I'm dealing with people who have had incredibly difficult childhood. Yep. And pointing out that you know, there's been these studies of the number of of, uh, of American presidents and British prime ministers who uh, were orphaned as children Extraordinary. is disproportionately high. Extraordinary, Extraordinary high. yeah. Um, and so I sort of tell a story of a guy who had a terrible childhood and went on to do something um, extraordinary, um, a cancer researcher. And uh, the, what you understand is that not everyone, a small number of people 
um, who are put through what is clearly the worst thing that can happen to a child, to lose a parent. If they manage to survive that, they are able then to go into their, the world as adults uh, with a kind of strength and resilience and armor they would never have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, they have an understanding of their own strengths that they would never have had. They have, they've, you know, they they can. There's almost nothing that can defeat them anymore. Mm-hmm. If you've mm-hmm. been through so this, this guy, I, 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 who's the subject of one of my of his chapters, the book, he he has a, about as bad a childhood as a human being can have, <laughs> and then he goes. And he, he, he's the one who begins the fight against childhood leukemia. Mm-hmm. And he devises a, a successful treatment for leukemia. And it's something that everyone else thought that no child could survive. You're, it's, the dose is too high. You're going to kill the kids. There's no way they can handle that. And he was the only one who said, actually, they can handle that. And how did he know that? Because he had a very different sense of what the human, of human resilience and of what a human being can go through and survive. This is weird sort of, you begin to get a glimpse of how extraordinary things are possible um, because of extreme adversity. And that's something, very clearly something I wanted to communicate. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting question about the balance between individuals and the broader society. The, the epigram for the David Boyce chapter, David Boyce, the lawyer who has dyslexia, uh, is um, a quote that says, you wouldn't wish dyslexia on your own child, or would you? Yeah. And then and then later on, and I think this is a nice way to capture it, and we're going to go to some listener questions here in a moment. You say, um, and I'm quoting Malcolm here, she say, but the question of whether any of us would wish on our children, I'm sorry, the question of what any of us would wish on our children is the wrong question, isn't it? The right question is whether we as a society need people who have emerged from some kind of trauma. And the answer is that we plainly do. So um, it's a great, interesting, fascinating point. Um, I think it, it made me reflect both on my own childhood, on my, on my, on my own kids. Let's go to um, some questions from listeners. I've been hogging the conversation. Um, let's go to this first question. Hi, this is Laura Gobe from Birmingham, Alabama. As you've mentioned in your books, your family ancestry is very diverse. Do you think this diversity has influenced your writing topics and style? And if so, how do you think this is displayed? Well, I guess I would just say that um, I have, I come from, I am an immigrant to America. I grew up in, uh, my family uh, were immigrants to Canada, where I grew up. And my mother was an immigrant to England, where she met my father and where I was born. So we have been, I come from, we're, I'm, an, I'm an immigrant so three times over. Yeah. Point. Well, your father, uh, you write in the book, your mother is a proper Jamaican woman. Your father, I, I think your father is British. He's a mathematician. Yes. yes. And, and you grew up in the uh, People's Republic of Ontario. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> um, and, then emigrate, and then emigrated to the United States to take jobs from hardworking Americans. To explicitly to take yes. uh, take employment from um, yeah. more qualified Americans. Yeah, um, and I've always thought that there is, you know, that when you look at sort of immigrant success in general, you sort of have to, you know, it's there's something very very puzzling about it. As a group, you know, this country has always been propelled. I'm not. I don't mean to be lumping myself in this group, but I'm to talk about immigrants as a as a whole for a moment. You know, people come in not knowing anyone, not knowing the culture, not knowing, you know, usually not having much money, and then they go on to do extraordinary things. So there's clearly something about the particular sort of difficulty associated with being an immigrant that is desirable. Um, and in my own case, it's that I guess I get to see the society I'm writing about with a fresh eye. And that, for a journalist, I mean, where you're basically being paid to have a fresh eye. Sure. It, uh, that's huge. It's a massive advantage. Um, so I've, I, I very much think that that's, a, that that's been an element in um, my own career. Interesting. Let's go to um, another uh, question. Uh, you're on the line with Malcolm. Hi, my name is Mario Starks calling in from Washington, D.C. Uh, my question for Malcolm relates to some timely business news that I think is related to uh, your book, David and Goliath. My question is, how does the recent purchase of the Washington Post uh, by billionaire Jeff Bezos, factor into the concepts that you articulate in your book, David and Goliath. 
Interesting oh, question. Yeah. Interesting. Because uh, Washington uh, Post David, was Goliath. Now it seems to be David. Well, maybe not well, it, a, a less capable David. Gone from, it's just has been on this kind of fascinating um, roller coaster ride from being the Goliath of, of national media, one of a very small number, to being a kind of massive underdog. I mean, I worked at the Washington Post for 10 years. I know the institution quite well. Um, but now they've just about been, they've been purchased literally by a company called Amazon. You can't get more Goliath, <laughs> Goliath like than that. Um, you know, one of the richest men in the world has now taken them over. Right? So it's a, it's a very different, I cannot even begin to imagine the difference that's going to make in um, the way they, they, they go about doing their business. But it seems like if I'm Jeff, if I'm Jeff Bezos, I can read this book and I can I can glean a couple of lessons from this, um, because I do think that the Post is in the position as a as a David right now, and so so maybe that one of the lessons to me that I would extract from this book is that you don't um, play the media game on the existing terms. You have to come up with yeah. a new way to play the game, basically invent a new set of rules. You have to look at your relative weaknesses right now, which is. Um, that you have a stable of costly human beings <laughs> um, doing serious work um, as some kind of a strength. So, I mean, do you, I yeah. mean, having worked at the Post for a decade, I mean, are there, you know, do you think, you know, let's say you're, you're um, I guess you wouldn't be on an airplane with Bezos because he'd be flying uh, private. But let's say that you were to pass him in a hallway somewhere and he said, hey, Malcolm, you know, what, what do I, what can I learn from your book to help me guide the Washington Post? Is there, you have one lesson for him, one, two lessons for him? Yeah, I would say, uh, I, I, following up on what you said, that um, there does seem to be need to be some kind of. This is an incredible opportunity for a kind of fundamental rethink. Mm. But they should not be fighting the battle on the terms of their competitors. Mm-hmm. They have something very specific and wonderful and valuable, which is a room full of people with extraordinary expertise in the most important city in the world. Mm. That's your value added. Stop doing all the things that are not central to that one mission. Yeah. So I does the post going forward need to have a sports section uh, that comes every day with the paper? I don't sure. Maybe not. Hmm. Maybe it should just be about the economy, politics and the rest of the world. Right? Interesting. The things that are central to what Washington is. Maybe the sports section exists only in some something online only or maybe you just give up and just say people get their sports now from ESPN. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll move on. Mm-hmm. Do they need to have, you know, all of these sort of and all the kind of department store like functions that these papers yeah. held yeah. in the past? Maybe it's time to walk away from that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the Post has done that with its business section, taking it from a separate section to part of an existing section, really cutting its staff significantly. Let's go. Uh, we got only a few more minutes here. I want to get a lot more callers in here. Let's go to the next caller. You're on the line with Malcolm. Hi, Angel Gonzalez in Ocala, Florida. And my question for you, Malcolm, is have you ever changed your mind about any of the concepts you've written about? Yeah, I have. Uh, I think as a writer... Uh, if you have not changed your mind about stuff you've written about, then you're not doing your job. Mm. Um, because, you know, I've been writing, I've been in journalism for uh, 25 years, and the world is a very different place than it was 25 years ago. And there are countless things that I thought were one way, and now as I'm, as the world is older and smarter, and I'm older and smarter, I realize they're not. So in Tipping Point, for example, I would, the whole chapter on the, crime drop in New York, I would rewrite if I was rewriting that today. Hmm. Uh, I would make quite different arguments. Um, we know so much more now about what happened. I mean, I was writing about that back then at the beginning of that process. Now we're, we're 15 years in to this extraordinary story, and I have very different opinions about what I think uh, explains it. Um, so, absolutely. And, you know, I'm always, I try to, to be um, I try to look on, uh, uh, I try to, I think, I think occasions when you can change your mind should be cherished because they mean you're smarter than you were before. Interesting. Nice way to look at it. Let's go to, uh, one more question if we can. You're on the line with Malcolm. Hey Dan, this is Daryl in Pleasant Grove, Utah, and I have a question for both Malcolm and you. Oh, okay. 
I think that most business books could make their case in far fewer than the two to 300 pages they typically take. <laughs> so how would you feel if your publisher told you that your next book could be no more than, say, 75 pages? Oh, that's great. Well, it certainly take the, uh, would I get less money for it? That's my question. Um, I think we're going to see that uh, happen. I think, you know, one of the, the, the thing that the ebook gives us, yeah. and you see this with Amazon singles, the thing that the ebook gives you is way more flexibility in, um, in what a book looks like. And uh, I predict that um, 10 years from now, the number of, There'll be all kinds of things that used to be 250 pages. That'll be 50. That it'll be quite commonplace for people just to self-publish things those length of magazine articles, um, and people will buy them the way they buy books. I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be um, a natural outgrowth of the of the of the of what the internet offers us. Yeah, yeah. The, the um, that, that hasn't. I mean, I, I've been waiting for something like that to happen. It hasn't quite happened yet. I've always thought there was a space between a magazine article and a book that we, that in mm-hmm. fiction might be a novella. Um, and we haven't seen a lot of that yet. But maybe it's one of those things where the um, uh, where we we over we over we overhype it in the short term and underhype it in the long term, and the world could be moving in that direction. But for now, we have a book. It's called David and Goliath. Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. It's by Malcolm Gladwell. It's another in a line of really terrific books. This book will make you, whether you're running a business, whether you're um, running a family, uh, whether you are just trying to understand the world, this book will help you do that, really challenge some of the conventions, particularly about who has advantages, who has disadvantages, who has power, and who um, who is lacking power. Malcolm, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, that's it for Office Hours. Thanks to everyone for listening. Please tune in to our next episode when our guest will be Tom Rath, author of Strengths Finder 2.0 and other blockbusters, whose new book, Eat, Move, Sleep, explores the science of nutrition, movement, and sleeping to offer some smart ways to live healthier and longer. You can find out more on www.danpink.com. Until then, I'm Daniel Pink. This is Office Hours. If you missed an episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But... You can find previous episodes on iTunes or on danpink.com. Thanks for listening.